From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Rachel Keith. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Michael Tift is an assistant professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He's also the director of UNCW's Marine Mammal Stranding Program. Dr. Tift is with us today to discuss his two research trips to Antarctica last summer, which are technically winters there, to study the health of crab eater seals, one of the most populous seal species on Earth. While Dr. Tift was studying and surveying the seals, he witnessed firsthand some major climate alarm bells going off. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, this past summer was a record-breaking low for Antarctic sea ice. They report that ice the size of Greenland broke off the continent. While Dr. Tift is ready to relay his experiences working in the Antarctic, he's also here to discuss his groundbreaking research in the use of carbon monoxide to help reduce inflammation before and after complex injuries. And we'll also talk about his work responding to mammal strandings off the North Carolina coast. A couple weeks back, he and his team responded to a pilot whale who washed up on the Outer Banks. The team then performed a necropsy of the whale. Dr. Tift, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So my last article on your Antarctic research was from May of last year, and so there's a lot to catch up on. So let's talk about that first trip in 2022, studying the crab eater seals and their habits, and what your initial observations were. And for those of us who don't know what a crab eater seal is or looks like, can you start with that first? Sure. So a crab eater seal is a type of animal that we call a phocid, which is a true seal. And so they don't have external ear flaps. They're the animals that when they move on the beach, they kind of do the worm kind of dance, as you would see. And so in appearance, an adult would be about eight feet long. They're several hundred pounds, and they're light gray in color. And so they look kind of like a basic seal in in that regard. And so when we were down working with them the past year, the previous year, we found that it was extremely difficult to locate them, which is completely not what we expected, knowing the fact that there are potentially tens of millions of these animals down in Antarctica. So that was one of the most difficult parts of of that trip was finding these animals that we thought would be everywhere. The whole part of this grant from the National Science Foundation was to have you return to take another year's worth of data. So let's talk about what you've learned over the past two years. Yeah, so the first year when we went down, we were attempting to work with 20 animals. And then the following year, we were hoping to work with another 20 animals. Due to the difficulty of just being able to find crab eater seals in general, the first year we were able to work with five. The following year, we were then able to work with nine. So a total of 14 animals. Some of the difficulties that we had was just locating the animals. And that's mainly due to the fact that these animals rely on hauling out of the water on these small ice flows. And these ice flows are just not there anymore. There used to be lots of ice for these animals to haul out on. Now, when you're down in Antarctica, when we were in the middle of winter, there's little to no ice. So it's very scary. And so we had to search longer to find these animals. And the the more difficult part was when you're in winter in Antarctica, the hours of daylight that we have were limited to about four hours a day. And so it's just a lot of difficult things that we had to maneuver just to find the animals. 
And how do you determine whether a flow is safe for you and your team to go on to it? In order to determine if the flow is safe, we work with other support staff that go down with us on the ship that have lots and lots of years of experience working on ice in Antarctica. And so they usually, after we have darted the animal to sedate it so that we can safely work with it, these support staff will actually check the ice for safety just to make sure that it's safe for us to work on. And then we'll make a determination if we can actually get on the ice flow as a team or not. And then how long is it to collect the sample and then put in your tracker? Yeah. So these animals are are large animals and they do have big teeth. So we do have to sedate them in order to safely work with them. And so after we sedate the animal, we do a whole suite of measurements on these animals. And some of the measurements can take up to three hours. So we're usually, um, from the moment that the animal is darted until the moment that we're leaving the ice flow so the animal can wake up and then go start to collect data with the instruments that we've, we've put on it. And with the crab eater seal, you know, why pick this animal in order to make conclusions about how climate change is affecting this ecosystem? Yeah, so the crab eater seal is the most populous large mammal on the planet. And that's not taking into account humans or domesticated mammals like cows. But there's estimations of up to 75 million of these animals with as low as 5 million, when in reality, there's probably between 5 and 10 million. We don't really yet have a good estimation of their population size. But because we know that there are several millions of these animals, they play a big role on the Antarctic ecosystem, but also on the ecosystem of the entire marine environment on the world. They also live in an area of Antarctica, the western peninsula where we were that is experiencing some of the fastest rates of warming on the planet. And because these animals haul out on ice and that ice is melting and not there anymore, we want to know how that's impacting these animals. And so because they have such a big impact on the ecosystem, we're trying to compare data that we've collected just recently in these last couple of years to data from 20 years ago when the warming effect wasn't near as dramatic. And you're mainly studying their main food source as well, the krill. Yeah, so the name crab eater seal is is sort of a misnomer. The animals themselves, crab eater seals, actually 90% of their diet is made up of Antarctic krill. The other 10% is mostly fish, um, maybe some squid, but mostly it's going to be krill. And krill is a tiny crustacean. It looks just like a shrimp. It's a couple inches long, but it's the most popular food source for all large animals in Antarctica and many other parts of the ocean. So blue whales, leopard seals, penguins, and the crab eater seal all rely on krill. And so we were also studying how the effects of sea ice being removed from the Antarctic environment is affecting not only the crab eater seal, but the food that they rely on, which is this krill. And it looks like from the research, we do know that they're shifting the krill southwards, but we don't know if the crab eaters are following suit. Yeah, so our project has a hypothesis that as global warming starts to affect the ice conditions in Antarctica, with there being just less ice, the animals will move southward. So towards the South Pole, well, there actually should be colder, there should be more ice, and the krill depend on ice. And so if their food is moving southward, we anticipate the crab eater seals to also just follow their food. And because they haul out on the ice that's floating in the ocean, if that's forming down south as well, they'll have the habitat they need, they'll have the food that they need. We don't quite yet know yet from the data if the animals are actually moving there, or maybe they're staying up north where the they're just used to that area, and they may have to travel further to get to the food if the food is moving south which could be problematic because it's just like 
having to take a longer trip to the grocery store, basically, you're spending more energy to go get the food to come back. So it could be difficult. Um, and that's what we're trying to determine with this last couple of years of data. And people can follow the seals that you and your team tagged, and you can see their foraging paths through a website called AntarcticSeals.com. And I went and looked at the data. Last year's five seals were named after Marvel characters like Black Panther and the Hulk, and this year's nine seals were named after fruits like clementine, apple, and kiwi. And kiwi had an interesting path. You can kind of see that seal going, what, north to forage. Yeah, so the whole point of our project was to compare the northern part of the peninsula, where we think we know it's experiencing the most warming effects, and the southern peninsula. So we tried to work with animals in both parts of that. And kiwi was an animal that was tagged in the southern region, where we expect there to be a lot more ice, the krill should be there. And you can see, if you go to antarctic-seals.com, which is a website we created, there's a, a link you can track, like you said, where you can click on an animal and see how long we've been tracking them in real time. And some of those animals transmitted as far as today when we're having this conversation. And so what you see with kiwi is kiwi was tagged. And we worked with that animal in the southern part of the the peninsula. And that animal actually looks like it's following the ice outwards into the middle of of the ocean. And so you can sort of see that this animal is sort of zigzagging as it sort of takes this meandering path out in the middle of the ocean. And that makes sense because that's where a lot of the ice tends to go in that direction. And you actually can look at animals from the previous year, and you'll see an animal that we tagged in the previous year that did basically the same exact thing. And most of our listeners are following the news. And it's been pretty stark this summer in June and just, you know, earlier this month. You know, you have NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, and the British Antarctic Survey that are saying it's astronomical the amount of sea ice loss that we've seen this year. Yeah. And could you talk about what your experiences and your team were like? I yeah. mean, could you see it and know what you're seeing? Yeah. So when we were down in Antarctica, we were there in the months of May and June, which is getting close to the middle of, of winter for Antarctica. And that's when you expect, obviously, it to be the coldest. There's really short days. Unfortunately, when we were down there, we saw some really disturbing things um, in the climate. We experienced temperatures as, as high as 10 degrees Celsius, which is close to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, in the middle of winter in Antarctica, together with just massive reductions in the sea ice, which is what animals like krill, but also all the whales and the seals and the penguins rely on. There's just not much ice. The ship that we were on, which is run by the National Science Foundation, has captains and mates that have been going down there for 30 plus years. And they said they've never seen this bad of conditions in their entire career. They've also were able to travel further south, which is where it should be colder and a lot more ice than they've ever been able to do because there just wasn't ice. So the ship could actually get to these areas that they were never able to get to in the previous years. So in terms of, yeah, the conditions, it's like it's never been before. There's no ice. It's warmer than it's ever been. You're experiencing days of close to 50 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle of winter. It's really, in terms of red flags, I would say it's more of a loud siren at this point. And for this grant, I mean, it was for you to return two years in a row. So are you going to go back or any other fellow UNCW scientists to look at to continue to monitor this? Yeah, so we have asked if there's a possibility of us returning to Antarctica to continue to study this. At the current time, the National Science Foundation has said that there's not currently funding for us to go down to continue to study this. So we're going to use the data that we have to try to make 
any sort of interpretations about what it says in terms of the crab eater and the krill health in terms of their relation to the sea ice and the warming events. And so with that, we will use this, use this data and attempt to try to get more funding in order to return. We're also working, like what you said, with other organizations like the British Antarctic Survey. And there's the potential that we might be able to team up with other groups that have the available funding in order for us to, to go back down to continue to work with these animals. And going back to the crab eater, I mean, is it the scenario of the polar bear where that distance that they have to travel could really seriously impact their health? Or will it be a mortality event? What will it be? I think time will tell with with the data that we're analyzing currently. So some of the data that we collected while we were down there was looking at body condition, which just tells sort of the health of the animal, the robustness of the animal. And unlike me and, and many others, we don't like to have lots of fat stores, right? But these seals do. And so the more fat stores or blubber that they have, the better body condition we say they have. And so we were measuring sort of the amount of fat stores in the animals that we worked with. And that should give us an indication of sort of how healthy these animals are. And if there's any difference between animals living in the northern part where there's more warming versus the southern part. So time will tell once that data comes out in terms of if there's any difference from our animals that we study this year, plus to the animals that we studied 20 years ago that weren't experiencing these dramatic reductions in sea ice at that point. Yeah, and from these articles, when we're talking about the catastrophic loss of the sea ice, they are saying, yes, the culprit would be human-induced climate change, but there are other factors that also complicate the situation as well. Yeah, so there's, there's natural climate variability, but the rate of warming and the rate of sea loss, sea ice loss, is more dramatic than we could have ever anticipated. And so it's pretty clear that the effects that we're seeing is not sort of natural variability that we've seen for the last 50, 60 years in the the data that we have. It seems that this is directly related to human influences on the climate. And so that speaks to the, the necessity of us to step up and try to figure out how can we sort of curb the effect that we're having on animals in Antarctica. Because For the most part, all of these animals and krill that are living down in Antarctica never see or experience humans, yet their entire environment is being changed by our impacts on them. And for you and other scientists, I mean, with this catastrophic sea ice melting and the heat that we're experiencing, are there other ways to describe to our listeners what the impact will be? Is there an immediate one or is it a continuing trend toward? The sea ice loss right now is at a catastrophic low. And so the impact on the animals is, is current. It's right now. It's, it's happening. What the impact is, we won't be able to definitively say until we actually crunch some numbers, but things are happening in Antarctica that would lead us to believe that many animals will be negatively impacted. Um, there may be some species that don't respond as strongly. The crab eater seal is one of those that we think will be negatively impacted by the effects of climate change, together with penguins as well, because both of those species rely so heavily on ice. They haul out on ice. They don't really tend to haul too much out on land. Some of them do. But crab eater seals in general just don't tend to haul out on land or the ice that's attached to land. They haul out on these flows. And without those ice flows even present, that just means they don't have the habitat to even take a break, take a nap nurse their pups on this ice flows and give birth. And so the habitat to do all that is just not there. So I think that the effects are right now, the effects are dramatic, and the effects could be long-lived. 
But time will tell. I think that as a population of humans on this planet, we have the ability to make decisions that we can have an influence on what we're doing, impacting even animals on the bottom of the planet. And with the sea level rise, will we see that downstream later or now? Yeah, I think that we're already starting to see sea level rise. You know, you can even see it here in Wilmington with when these large tidal floods come in and flood streets and things like that. With these massive, massive chunks of ice sort of peeling off Antarctica, what that happens is that white ice gets in the middle of the dark ocean and then it starts to melt really, really fast. And all of that ice will then turn into water and then it will then cause sea level to rise. And so that's kind of what we're seeing all over the planet, even here in Wilmington. And recently, I have to ask, on All Things Considered, reporter David Fulkenflick talked about a new global study from Reuters Institute at Oxford University that many people are choosing to avoid news about climate change. And I even had a friend comment that all I hear on NPR are heat waves and climate change, and it's ad nauseum. We also have uh, research from human behavioral psychologists that say that people tend to avoid problems only news and that they want more problems presented with solutions or responses to the problem. So what are your thoughts on this? Because you are a scientist and you are sounding the alarm, but... Yeah, I can totally relate. I find myself doing the same thing when you turn on the news these days. It's hard to not hear some negative things that you don't want to even think about. Unfortunately, the reality with climate change, as we're all experiencing with these heat waves, is it's here and it's it's really not great. It's, it's, it's a bad situation. So in order to sort of try to figure out what we can do as, as individuals, there's some simple things that we can do. You can choose to eat a more plant-based diet, which is better for carbon emissions. You can learn to drive or try to drive an electric car, which is just less emissions. There's some lifestyle choices that you can make. But I think the most important thing that we can have individuals do that's easy and manageable is to learn that you can make a change with your vote, right? So focus on candidates who are taking climate change serious. Focus on candidates that are making curbing the effects of climate change one of their major concerns and major issues that they're trying to tackle. And then we have to hold accountable these large organizations and large companies that have knowingly had an impact on our climate in terms of emissions and, and the greenhouse effect that they've contributed to. And we have to find ways to sort of stop the large amount of emissions that we're having in the environment. Yeah, and we're going to have municipal city of Wilmington elections in the fall. I mean, do you think that the city representative could also talk about this or? Absolutely. I think that I think that all politicians will have a say in how we start to curtail the effects of climate change, whether it's at the local level or it's at the international level. I think that everyone should focus on supporting people that are trying to make an impact on lessening the impacts of climate change because, like you said, we all are aware that it's here and that it's depressing, but there's a lot of things that we can do, and these people, politicians, will be the ones that sort of help make the changes and enforce the regulations in order to make things better. And throughout your travels of the first summer and the second one, I was following you and Dr. Luis Huckstat mm -hmm. on social media. And while we are talking about climate change being very depressing, but because of your research, you get to go into these far-flung places, and they are absolutely beautiful. It is remarkable to be able to have 
be fortunate enough to travel down to Antarctica more than once. And so many people don't realize that Antarctica has lots of mountains and it's strikingly beautiful. And so, yeah, if you see any photos, whether it's from us on social media or just whether you're looking up photos of Antarctica, it is, to me, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And when we were down there in June and July, which is the middle of the winter for Antarctica, it's basically four hours of daylight a day, which means that it's essentially sunset sky the entire time with these beautiful colors in the background, beautiful mountains in the background, glaciers, ice, whales all around you in times. And so, yeah, it could be one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. So when I came back to Wilmington and it was 95 degrees, you know, 100% humidity, I, I quickly wished that I was back down in Antarctica on that icebreaker. Okay, on that note, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Dr. Tift talking about his groundbreaking research on therapeutic uses of carbon monoxide. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Rachel Keith here with Dr. Michael Tift, an assistant professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And Dr. Tift, you study deep diving mammals. We just talked about crab eater seals uh, to learn about how they use the gas carbon monoxide in their bodies. And why did you decide to study this? Yeah, so carbon monoxide is chemical symbol is CO. And so many folks know carbon monoxide as its other name, which is the silent killer. So it, it doesn't have any scent. Um, you can't see it. You can't taste it. And why it's toxic is it actually prevents the body from delivering oxygen adequately. So it essentially starves the body of oxygen. But that's at large concentrations. That's if you're exposed to carbon monoxide levels that are high and the, a lot of CO gets into your body. What we're finding now is that low concentrations of carbon monoxide or even moderate concentrations of carbon monoxide can actually have pretty potent therapeutic and protective effects for certain tissues and cells. And that's completely contrary to what we've always thought of carbon monoxide. And so what I always tell folks is everything can be good in moderation. Water is toxic at high levels. Oxygen is toxic at high levels. Carbon monoxide is certainly toxic at high levels, but we're showing that it's somewhat protective at low levels. And so now the research is trying to figure out, is there a way to deliver carbon monoxide safely in order to have these protective effects to alleviate injuries from certain things that we can talk about later, such as heart attacks and strokes? And my lab is also not only focusing on that part of the carbon monoxide story, but we're also trying to focus on the fact that some animals in nature have levels of carbon monoxide naturally in their body that are as high as someone smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And so that is mind-blowing in, in terms of stumbling upon this discovery of this toxic gas being high in the bodies of some wild animals. And so the question now is, why is it high? And is it doing anything to help these animals? 
Yeah, and your expertise, you've done elephant seals, crab eater seals, but you're also studying complex CO systems in species like ground squirrels and naked mole rats. Yeah, so we're, we're sort of trying to do this shotgun approach of figuring out what species, what wild animal species have carbon monoxide levels that are high, and can we study those species in a way to learn that the carbon monoxide might be helping those animals in certain ways and if we can learn that, if we can learn that it's protecting certain tissues or protecting their, their body from certain injuries, can we apply that information back to human or even veterinary health? And so that's some of the areas that we're tackling. Uh, the elephant seal, which is an animal that I've worked with quite a bit, is one of those weird animals that have levels of carbon monoxide in their blood that resemble someone that smokes a couple packs of cigarettes a day. And we shouldn't do that, And right? we should definitely not do that, right? It's just, it's just an easy way for me to tell folks about how high the levels of CO are. So when we talk about carbon monoxide being protective, I always need to stop and say carbon monoxide is showing to be protective at moderate concentrations, but I'm no way suggesting that you should go try to inhale carbon monoxide or smoke cigarettes for a protective effect. I do not think that that's a good idea. So we're working with teams now um, from Harvard University, from the University of Iowa and other places that are developing carbon monoxide releasing drugs and unique ways to deliver carbon monoxide safely into the body. And so that is now where this research is heading. The first effects of carbon monoxide in terms of protective effects was found when they got animals and humans to inhale carbon monoxide. And that's not great for a delivery mechanism because it goes everywhere. So now they're trying to figure out, is there a way to deliver it specifically to tissues? And they're coming up with really novel ways to release the carbon monoxide into tissues. And can you talk about briefly the science? It sounds like this gas decreases inflammation in the body. And is that the main yeah, effect? So, yeah. So carbon monoxide is a, is a relatively simple gas molecularly. It's just one carbon bound to one oxygen. And medically, we're interested in carbon monoxide because we know exactly what it targets, which is iron and heme proteins like hemoglobin and things like that. And so when carbon monoxide gets in the body, it targets pathways that suppress inflammation. It also suppresses things called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. And so when a person has an injury like a heart attack or a stroke, there's often lots of inflammation and apoptosis that follow that leads to injuries in the tissue, like the brain and the heart. And what they're showing is that carbon monoxide can suppress those injuries. And so we want to be able to do that, but we want to be able to do it safely. And so what we're thinking is that some of these animals that we work with in the wild, like elephant seals, they actually experience symptoms similar to heart attacks and strokes and that when they're diving, they shut blood flow off completely to organs for prolonged periods of time, hours potentially. And then when they're at the surface, they send blood back to those organs, just like a heart attack would happen. And they don't have injuries from this, but they have high carbon monoxide. So we're trying to figure out, is that carbon monoxide the thing that's helping these animals to not get those injuries? And can we apply that information then to help potentially human patients? And you last interviewed on this topic with Rachel Lewis Hilburn on Coastline in 2019, and I helped produce that show. And I was really curious to know, have there been a lot of big breakthroughs in this science that you've been doing since 2019? Yes. Yeah. So in terms of the, the sort of evolutionary story of finding out how carbon monoxide is dispersed in wild animals, um, we've made some pretty decent headway in terms of finding out sort of why we think the carbon monoxide is elevated. Carbon monoxide is toxic because it binds to iron heme proteins like hemoglobin and prevents oxygen transport. But ironically, it's produced 
in the body from the breakdown of heme. So it's this circular story. So a person that breaks down red blood cells and breaks down the hemoglobin inside will produce a lot of carbon monoxide. And so we thought maybe that's the source of the high carbon monoxide in animals is red blood cell and hemoglobin breakdown. So you could say like if an animal is turning over red cells really fast in the hemoglobin, they would produce a lot of carbon monoxide. And elephant seals have more red blood cells than most mammals on the planet in terms of how much blood they have. They're, they have the highest mass-specific blood volume of any mammal on Earth. Mm. So it was kind of this question of, is that the source? It seems that that likely is the source, but the rate at which they're turning over these red cells is actually much slower than we thought. We thought that they might be turning over red blood cells really fast, turning over hemoglobin really fast, producing a lot of carbon monoxide, and that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be they might be turning over red blood cells really slow, and the carbon monoxide builds up in the body, and then they can't get rid of it because they need to exhale it. And most of these animals that we work with hold their breath for prolonged periods of time, and that's the primary way to get rid of the carbon monoxide is to exhale it. So we think that animals that experience breath holding as a part of their life might build up carbon monoxide over time, and that actually could then lead to the CO getting higher and then helping their tissues when they're diving, when they get blood flow shut off to those. There's also new breakthroughs on carbon monoxide delivery mechanisms. And so some of the groups that we're working with are developing really unique substrates to deliver carbon monoxide into the body. One of those is this foam that is made by Harvard University and, and folks from the University of Iowa where they take a food-safe material similar to like a gel-like material and they bubble carbon monoxide in it to make a foam. And then they can introduce that to the animal maybe orally where the carbon monoxide will be released across the stomach and get into the blood. And they're showing that that is a safe way to deliver carbon monoxide for certain tissues. Another really unique uh, novel mechanism that they've come up with is these carbon monoxide pop rocks. So the candy pop rocks releases a, a specific gas into the mouth, and they've developed this same type of candy that releases carbon monoxide. And so it's a, a unique way to think about maybe approaching CO delivery in kids. You can give them this candy, for instance, and it might be helping to alleviate, like we said, inflammation maybe in the stomach and those kind of conditions that we associate carbon monoxide being protective. Yeah, and let's go further into that application. It says that potentially this could be used to prevent injuries or after an injury has occurred, or even in some cancers, could carbon monoxide be helpful? Yeah, so carbon monoxide has the protective effect of the anti-inflammation and the anti-cell death. And so after many injuries associated with maybe an organ transplant or, like we said, heart attack and stroke, you see that massive wave of inflammation and the massive wave of cell death. And so they're showing that you can either treat individuals with carbon monoxide before those injuries happen, maybe before an organ transplant, for example, or even after an organ transplant or after a heart attack, for example. And you can dampen the injury that is associated with, with that heart attack or organ transplant. So the other thing that we're seeing is that carbon monoxide is actually showing promise for destroying cancer cells. So the same sort of way that we thought about needing to deliver carbon monoxide safely to treat injuries associated with inflammation, we're now trying to figure out can we deliver carbon monoxide specifically to tumors, which the carbon monoxide, when it gets to those cells, will interact with the cells in a way to actually destroy the cancer cells and then keep the other cells nearby, your healthy cells safe. 
So we're still trying to figure out that mechanism. We've just submitted our first publication to show the effects of the CO foam on the ability for that to alleviate cancer cells. And so those results should be coming out within the next few months. Yeah, and that paper delivery of therapeutic carbon monoxide by gas entrapping materials. Yeah. And, and the journal is Science Translation Medicine. Yeah. So there's yeah. it's it's been a really fun time here in Wilmington coming, you know, studying the aspects of carbon monoxide from the wild animal part, the evolutionary part, but also being able to dive into this medical translation research where we're showing that carbon monoxide can have protective effects for tissues. And that paper was a great paper uh, that just came out uh, fairly recently showing the effects of this new CO delivery mechanism on treating inflammation. And we're not in human trials right now. So there have been human trials on carbon monoxide delivery. Um, in terms of this particular CO foam, not yet. So the, the studies that came out with the inhalation carbon monoxide was not able to show that the carbon monoxide had potent therapeutic effects enough to push the study forward. And so what we think happened in that study is that they regulated the amount of carbon monoxide that could deliver to the human, and it actually wasn't enough. They had to sort of be protective of these patients for obvious reasons. And so there's now studies trying to figure out, can we push that a little bit higher just to see if it's protective enough? But you got to walk a fine line because if you get the carbon monoxide levels too high, then it can have negative effects. But the foam, the gel that you worked on, that was just in animal subjects as of now. Yeah, as of right now, the, the CO foam that we're working on is, is mostly in animal models. All right. Well, we've got to take another break, but we'll be right back to talk to Dr. Tift about his work with, he wears another hat, with the Marine Mammal Stranding Program. You're listening to the Newsroom. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Keith here with Dr. Michael Tift, an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Dr. Tift, you are also the director of UNCW's Marine Mammal Stranding Program. And when I was reaching out to you for this show about your Antarctic research, you were in the midst of responding to a stranded pilot whale on the Outer Banks. So could you tell us that story? Yeah. So we got a call of a short fin pilot whale that was alive in the Outer Banks and was rolling around in the surf, unfortunately. And we have Another team that we work with, another stranding team up in the Outer Banks that, that responded to that animal. And by the time they were able to, to get to the animal, it unfortunately had, it had died. And so we as stranding teams in North Carolina, there's several of us, we work together as a big collaborative unit. And we use those unfortunate events in these marine mammals that strand to try to learn about them, to see why they died. Is there anything we can do to prevent that death? Do we need to sound the alarm of maybe a disease spreading? And so when we have an animal like that, that that passes, we bring them back to the lab and we do what's called a necropsy, which is an autopsy for an animal. And we take apart the animal very meticulously and look at every single organ and, and try to find if we can determine the cause of death in the animal. And we report our findings back to the national government. So NOAA is the organization that manages marine mammals. 
And so we report our findings and we work with them to sort of see if we can learn from these animals that do die on our coast to try to mitigate any injuries or disease that's spreading on our coast. So that animal did pass. We were able to take it apart and try to figure out why it died. There wasn't any sort of smoking gun of why it passed, but we do pass a lot of the tissues off to other labs that look for diseases and things that we can't see with the naked eye when we're doing our necropsy. The other thing that's really unique about our stranding program and the whole stranding unit in the North Carolina coast is that we do a lot of science. And so on top of trying to figure out why these animals you know, die on our coast, we have a lot of other questions that we just don't get access to these tissues very often. And so we can use these opportunities to learn more about these animals in other ways. And so we have lots of researchers at UNCW but also abroad, international, and national that we can work with to study these animals just to learn more about their basic biology. And was this a young whale or? So this was likely a subadult animal. Uh, it was about eight feet long and it was about 300 kilograms, so just over 600 pounds. And yeah, it's fairly common for this species of whale to strand. In fact, you may have heard in New Zealand, these animals strand in large numbers often, which is what we were really worried was gonna happen. Knock on wood that this is the only animal that stranded that day. And so we brought it back to the lab and did our best to understand sort of what happened to it. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask you in late July, they were hurting into this heart shape and I saw that and I think it was signaling to scientists that something is up and then about a hundred of them stranded. I mean, did you watch that in real time? And I think it's a big puzzle still. Yeah, I didn't watch it in real time. I was listening to it on the news and hearing about it from colleagues. It's unfortunate that it's not uncommon for that particular species to strand in large numbers. They are herd animals, so you will see them in large groups. And the reason of why they strand in large numbers, we still don't really know, right? We don't really have the ability to ask them sort of what's going on. If there's any sort of diseases that are spreading or maybe some events that happen offshore, like drilling or sonar events, we may be able to attribute things like that. But it's not always that we can have these things that point to, yes, this is why these animals stranded in large numbers versus this is why only one animal stranded. So the North Atlantic right whale is a, a species that we do see here along the coast of North Carolina. And when those animals strand, it's an extremely unfortunate event because there's around 300 of them left in the world. So they live all the way up from the, the northeast coast of, of Canada, and they travel all the way down here to Florida in North Carolina. We've actually had a, an animal, Calvin, give birth right off of Wrightsville Beach Pier a couple times. And so the most common cause of death in North Atlantic right whales is going to be ship strikes, and it's going to be entanglement in ropes from fishing gear like crab pots. And so it's important to think about the impacts that we have as humans on these animals. And so shipping is not something that a lot of people think about, but I would probably put a lot of money on a lot of people depending on Amazon two-day shipping and getting a lot of stuff shipped overseas because it's just easy for us to think about wanting things to get here really quick. It's very convenient. I myself fall to this. And so it's just something that I think we need to be more cognitive of in the fact that we can do things like shop locally to, to impact these animals less, right? You can choose to eat seafood that's sustainably caught. You can choose to support alternative ways to catch animals without these ropes. Um, you can support science that's going into looking into how to mitigate entanglements and ship strikes and things like that. So it's all stuff that folks can think about in terms of ways to save these beautiful animals that we often get to see right out here off of our coast. 
And last summer, I was able to view a bottlenose dolphin necropsy with your colleague, Dr. Tiffany Keenan. And this particular dolphin did have fishing lines you could see um, on its body. So that was one of, they think, is what happened, that they got caught and they drowned, essentially. Yeah, it's unfortunate when we come across those events when we have what we call human interaction events or fishery interaction events. It's not an uncommon experience, which is unfortunate, but those are the kind of things that we try to pass back to our colleagues and try to make decisions about. Is there anything we can learn from the type of fishing line that they were entangled in, the type of fishing gear they got into trouble with, that we can work with fishermen, work with organizations to limit the number of times this happens. And so that's one of our jobs as a, as a stranding network at UNCW, as the Marine Mammal Stranding Program there, is we try to do a lot of outreach events to spread the news about things that can impact animals like fishing gear. You should always pick up your extra fishing line. You should try to use line that you know, is not abrasive to the animals. There's certain types of fishing line that are, that are more problematic than others. And so it's just learning about these types of things, learning to eat sustainable seafood, things like that, that you can actually have an impact on the marine mammals here off of our coast of North Carolina. And going back to the pilot whale, was it trucked down to your lab or did you go up there, up north, to to do the necropsy? Yeah, so that pilot whale stranded and it died on the Outer Banks. And we drove up to the Outer Banks and we retrieved the animal from our stranding colleagues up there in the Outer Banks. And we actually brought it down to Moorhead City where we work with North Carolina State University's stranding program. And we worked with uh, a couple of our most dear colleagues there at North Carolina State University's marine program, which is called CMAST. And we together, we performed the necropsy. It was a really collaborative event. And then the tissues that we were collecting for science, but also for the necropsy, we brought back to UNCW. We'll, we'll continue to do further investigations. And it's my understanding that at your lab, you'd be able to, I think you've done a small whale before in this lab, and maybe an ostrich, I heard, and a shark. <laughs> um, lots of different animals come through that lab. Yeah, so we're extremely fortunate at UNCW to have a facility that's called the Oral Burvich Laboratory that's specifically designed for doing necropsies on large animals. And so it's a wonderful facility that we work in routinely to take apart and learn about these large animals because I will tell you that doing a necropsy on these animals in 90 degree heat is not the most fun. This is an air conditioned building, it's very controlled. Has the team responded to many strandings this summer? I checked in last summer with how the strandings, and it sounds like bottlenose dolphins are the majority of what you see. So could you talk about how this summer has been going? So this summer, the number of overall strandings is not terribly high, so knock on wood. And so that can change in an instant. We've had diseases come through where we're responding to strandings almost every day. Fortunately, right now, it seems to be that we're not having too many strandings, which is a good thing. And so when we start to have more strandings, you start to see these red flags going up and we try to figure out sort of why those are going on. About 90, 95% of what we've been responding to is dolphins. We had a really unfortunate event this past summer of a mother and calf pygmy sperm whale that stranded. That's another species that is a very deep diving species, 
but strands commonly here on our coast. And again, it's an extremely unfortunate event. We, we did the necropsy to try to learn as best as we could, and then we collected samples to learn more about the biology of those animals. And so we try to turn the unfortunate event into something that we can learn from in terms of science, but also for the better of the species. And are we still seeing odd mammals like ice seals? I saw one in your freezer last summer. I mean, and Dr. Keenan was very concerned that these animals are showing up off the North Carolina coast. Yeah, so we do tend to see a slight increase in the number of animals that we didn't see as much of in the past, which are Arctic seals coming down from the northern waters of Canada and even beyond Canada. So every once in a while we'll have a harp seal show up or a gray seal show up. And so that's a really uncommon event. Normally those animals are are pretty sick. And so hopefully it's just a a one-off occurrence. One of the things that I'm most worried about uh, that we're seeing more and more often are manatees. And so manatees come up from Florida and they spend the summers here and they'll actually go into marinas and swim in the intracoastal waterway. And it's just a wonderful experience if you ever get to see a manatee. The problem is that because we're experiencing warmer and warmer waters all the time, those manatees are staying around longer and longer. And why that's a problem is that when it finally gets cold in North Carolina, it can get cold really fast. And when those animals are exposed to those really fast cold changes in temperature, they can have big issues. So they get cold, stunned, and they just basically tend to deteriorate at that point. And so what we've been trying to tell folks from the Stranding Network is that if you see a manatee, please, or if you see any marine mammal for that matter, please enjoy it, observe it from a distance, But the worst thing that you can do for a manatee in particular would be to feed it from a garden hose or feed it lettuce or anything like that. We need to just leave the animals alone and not give them a reason to want to stay because if that animal does stay, it likely would experience things that could be very bad for it and could lead to its life being taken away from it. So we want those animals to to go back down to Florida to visit us in the summer, and, and it's just a wonderful experience when you do get to see them. One thing that I will state is that if you ever see a sick, injured, or a dead marine mammal, please report it. So we have a phone number, which I'll state here in a second. Okay, so the phone number for the UNCW Marine Mammal Stranding Program is area code 910-515-7354. But the one thing that you can easily do is call your local police department. The local police have our phone number. If you can't remember our phone number, And you can go ahead and give them a call and report it. And then we're gladly to respond to it as best as we can. Did you say before that we are seeing more manatees coming north because of the, is it too hot for them down in Florida and they're going north to get more temperate? Do we know that yet? Well, I don't specifically know that off the top of my head. We're starting to crunch the numbers now to see if there's a trend of increasing manatees. It might be that we're just getting more calls than we did in the past. And so we really are trying to figure out a way to monitor this because it seems to be happening at a rapid rate in terms of like the number of calls of manatees that we're getting now versus in the past seems to be higher. Whether it's an increase in the number of phone calls or whether it's actually an increase in the number of animals, we're still trying to figure that out. Well, that's all the time we have for today. 
Thank you so much to our guest today, Dr. Michael Tift. Thanks for having me. And to the WHQR production team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Rachel Keith. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Newsroom with your guest host and my colleague, Rachel Keith. Now, it's mid-August as we're recording this episode, and we know many of you are thinking about late summer vacation or heading back to school or just trying to beat the heat. But don't forget, there's an election coming up. Actually, elections in villages, towns, and cities across the state. This year, WHQR is taking a new approach to election coverage, something we're calling the Community Agenda. In past years, candidates have staked out what they think the election is about, and journalists, including us here at WHQR, have added their own concerns. But this year, we want to hear directly from you. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about for the coming years? And maybe most importantly, what's not being talked about that you think should be out front and center during the election? For 2023, our Community Agenda program is focused on the city of Wilmington. We're hoping to hear from voters in that election through the end of September. And what we hear from you, that will play a direct role in how we run our candidate interviews and public forum, and how we craft other elections coverage. Now, if this sounds interesting to you, and I hope it does, you can find more at whqr.org slash community agenda. You can also find more info on our homepage or under the local tab at the top of that page. Okay, thanks for listening. Now, I hope we hear from you. <laughs>